Michael Vonnen. Welcome to the Tolkien Lore Channel. I'm the Tolkien Geek, and in this video I want to talk about the world that Tolkien created, quite literally. From the very beginning of its creation and through its history in terms of what shaped it, what changed its shape, and the major events that happened along the way. Uh, basically it's all about the actual physical existence of Tolkien's world. What it's called is not exactly Middle-earth. I'll get to that in the video itself, but of course I'm going to start at the very beginning and just go chronologically through from the creation through the end of what we know of the Third Age. So with that said, let's find out a little bit about the world that Tolkien created. We're starting at the very beginning, and by the beginning I mean more or less in the beginning God created. Now of course we're not talking about the Bible, but reading the very first part of the Silmarillion, you would be forgiven for thinking that the book was based in part on somebody's speculative commentary on Genesis chapter 1, because reading it, you very much do get the idea that it's a heavily, heavily influenced by the biblical creation account. And of course that makes sense, because Tolkien himself was a Catholic, so it makes sense that his, his own mythology would to some extent reflect his own theological beliefs. It starts with essentially a monotheistic deity named Eru Iluvatar, which is the one and the father of all, essentially is what that means. And he creates the Ainur, which are translated as basically the holy ones. And these are basically equivalent to angels in what a Christian or Judeo-Christian uh, culture would consider an angel. They're not necessarily exactly the same thing, but it's cl the closest analogy. Within that, you have different, there's a bit of a hierarchy within, you know, the angelic order. You've got the, the greater and the lesser. Uh, but after creating these uh, Ainur, uh, he has them essentially make music. And this happens for a long time, and it's basically just more or less for his own enjoyment. Uh, during this period, uh, one of the, the, arguably the greatest of the Ainur, whose name is Melkor, later to be known as Morgoth, searches for uh, what is called the Secret Fire, which is within Eru Iluvatar himself and is the source of his ability to actually create. Melkor, of course, of course never finds it, uh, but it ends up being key to the creation story because Eru Iluvatar eventually has... Uh, the, the Ainur make a great music, and the basic, basically you get the idea that this is more or less the most magnificent uh, theme of music that Eru Iluvatar has propounded to the Ainur. They all, when, when he expounds it to them, they're all in amazement and they get ready to play, and sure enough, they do start playing. Melkor, who of course is the Satan figure, uh, begins to play some notes of his own that aren't really part of the original theme, and that ends up causing discord with the rest of the Ainur's music. And so you kind of see a little bit of, this is kind of like a pre-fall, sort of, but the, because of the discord, Eruluvatar works a new theme into the existing music to incorporate Melkor's. Melkor then tries again to clash and a Iluvatar comes back with yet a third theme. Eventually, the whole thing becomes so cacophonous that Iluvatar says, Stop, we're done. Uh, and of course, he's pretty angry at Melkor, but he then shows in a vision the Ainur what their music 
basically was about, and it ends up being the world. And the world is ends up getting its name from what Iluvatar does next. He basically he says the things which you, sh- you which you see in this vision shall be, and he says let it be, which in the Elvish is Ea. And so the actual universe takes its name from that. The universe of the Lord of the Rings and associated stories is Ea. And more locally, what we would call our own planet, more or less, is Arda. That, of course, comes out a little bit later on in the story. It's, but initially, they just create the world. And, and Eru Luvatar basically points out to the different Ainur, you know, this is what you were doing with your music. So, for example, Ulmo, who is the Vala, later the Vala of Waters, his music was more or less geared toward creating water within the world, and so on and so forth. And and Melkor, his ends up being kind of taking what was already there and driving it to extreme. So to take Ulmo again as the Vala of Water, he takes extreme heat and extreme cold, changes these to steams and ice, which Eru Luvatar has basically worked the whole thing into you know, show that, you know, even these things can be beautiful in their own way, even though they're harsh. Uh, so there's a lot of theology kind of going on in that initial story. After the creation, the actual bringing into being of Ea, many of the Ainur, not all of them, but many of them decide to enter into the world to help shape it and keep it, you know, going. Because also in the vision, what Iluvatar showed them was not just kind of as it was, but a history in prospective. Essentially, he was showing them this is more or less what's going to happen in the history. He didn't show them everything, but he did show them a good deal of it. And several of the Ainur wanted to enter the world and become kind of its keepers and, and deal with that. Melkor, of course, is one of those. He doesn't want to help the world out. He wants to rule it. Um, but out of that comes the next stage in the development of Ea, and I'll get to that in the next section because I've already spent a good deal just on the creation story. In the very early stages, after the Ainur enter the world, uh, they later, of course, become known and in their different forms as the mightier ones become known as the Valar or the powers or alternatively the gods. And the lesser ones become known as Maiar. And Maiar would be Sauron, Gandalf, Saruman. Those are Maiar. The Valar never really come into play much in terms of directly interacting with humans, except occasionally in the very early parts of the story. Um, But they're the ones that kind of have, you can almost think of them as managerial, because Ulmo, for instance, he's over all the waters, but he has several Maiar beneath him who are specific to oceans, rivers, that sort of thing. Um, And during the initial period, the Valar are basically trying to shape the world to make it as good as they possibly can, Melkor, on his end, is trying to wreck everything they do. So he's constantly, again, trying to bring things to extremes, make you know excessive heat, excessive cold. He makes his abode in the north in eventually, but where it's extremely cold. But before that, you get a lot of attempts by the Valar to try to shape the world. And one of their very early attempts is they set up two huge lamps on pillars that dwarf the highest mountains that end up, you know, end up on the earth. Melkor ends up toppling both of these, which A, destroys the light, B, it changes the shape of the world itself. 
One thing to note, the world at this point is a flat world. It's not a globe. The globe shape comes about in Tolkien's mythology much, much later on. Uh, but the interesting thing here is basically to note that whenever the lamps get cast down, what originally was a relatively symmetrical flat earth is now marred by the collapse of these lamps and the damage they do to the landscape. And so the Valar continue to try these, you know, different attempts to try to make the world grow. You've got some of the Valar trying to produce, you know, vegetation, some of them working with animals. They're all trying to essentially bring it to the fruition of what they saw in their vision. Melkor is constantly working against that. Eventually, the Valar decide we can't protect the entirety of the world because Melkor just keeps wrecking everything. And so what we're going to do is we're going to wall off our own little section of it and protect that. And so what they do is they take the westernmost continent of uh, Arda, and that ends up becoming Valinor, which of course is the Undying Lands. Uh, the continent itself is actually called Amon, which Valinor is basically just the subsection that's inhabited because there's bits and pieces of Amon, and I won't get into this here, but there's bits and pieces of it that really aren't inhabited by the Valar or their followers. So anyway, they, they do that. They wall that off. Uh, and that's kind of the next major development in terms of the shaping of Middle-earth. They have now kind of separated themselves from, uh, I say Middle-earth, I mean Arda, They've separated themselves from Middle-earth, which is the next continent over, which is what we're familiar with, mostly from the Lord of the Rings. And once they've done this, Melkor just kind of has free reign in Middle-earth, although he's not really doing a whole lot, but neither are the Valar. They've kind of left it to do its own thing, and that's not much. There's no sun, no moon, no stars at this point, although Varda, one of the Valar, does begin to work on stars, and that's really the first light that ever comes to Middle-earth. Meanwhile, in Valinor, they've got their own lights from different sources. And eventually what comes about and, and what really gets the narrative going in terms of what we're more familiar with in terms of Lord of the Rings and the greater elements of the story from the Silmarillion is they finally discover that elves, the firstborn of Iluvatar, and this is one of the things they didn't foresee in the vision, have come into being in Middle-earth. And so at this point, Manwe, who is the king of the gods, or the Valar, he decides, you know, we've left Melkor alone, but because of the elves, we really have to do something about this guy. Uh, so they get the elves, they have them uh, brought to Valinor, those that will go. Some of them won't because they're kind of overawed by the Valar, but most of them do go. Um, and they, they try to bring them to Valinor, and at the same time, more or less, they also essentially invade Melkor's uh, dwelling, which was Utumno at the time, and they bring him captive back to Valinor as well. Now, the interesting thing is, once they bring the elves, of the three houses of the elves, and I'll link to my video on the, the three houses of the elves uh, below, of those three houses, two of them are the ones that did make the journey, they did all go to Valinor. The third ones became so enamored of the sea that they kind of stuck around a little while. And they became the ones that were most adept at shipbuilding. And they're also the ones that are most, have a greater leaning toward music. This becomes relevant for the shape of the world 
because what eventually happens is they come with a compromise where uh, one of Ulno's Maiar, I'll say, eventually takes one of the islands in the ocean between uh, Amon and Middle-earth and drags it most of the way to Valinor such that they're within sight of Valinor, but they're still on the ocean. And so, and they eventually also set up a bit of a harbor on the continent of Amon itself. But that's kind of the last major shaping of the world before you get into the main narrative. And so let's go ahead and talk about the next bit, because that's where things start to get a little more interesting in terms of really affecting the plot directly. So at the end of more or less the long peace after Melkor was brought to Valinor and kept as a captive, he ends up creating havoc as usual. He's rela released on the grounds that he seems to have repented, uh, but he ends up sowing a lot of discord among the elves, and particularly the Noldor and Feanor, in particular, who is the creator of the Silmarils. He eventually, of course, absconds with the Silmarils back to Middle-earth, and then you have the Noldor follow him, and for the basically the entirety of the First Age, they're warring with Morgoth, who is, that's just the name that they gave him, the Black Foe, trying to recover the Silmarils. Not much happens in terms of the shape of the world at this point. He does rebuild his, uh, or rebuild or slightly new uh, fortress of Angband, uh, in the, again, in the north of Middle-earth. But during this period, there's really not a whole lot of misshaping of Middle-earth or anything like that. At the end of the First Age, however, eventually the Valar are moved to pity and to come to the rescue of the elves. And so at the very end of the First Age, you have the Valar and many of the Maiar and the elves that were still in uh, Valinor. They all come to basically defeat Melkor once and for all. And the violence that occurs because of the, the amount of, you know, the sheer power involved in the Valar wrestling with Melkor and all the other things, you know, there's got dragons, Balrogs, all kinds of supernatural events going on. This ends up causing the western part of Middle-earth, which is Beleriand, everything beyond you know, the Blue Mountains, which you can see in, in the Lord of the Ring map to the very west. West of that was essentially another entire region called Beleriand. All of that sinks as a result of what ends up being called the War of Wrath. This is the next major event that changes the shape of the world. So you have a huge amount of land that sinks. Some of it, the very highest peaks, may still be islands out there in the western seas. Um, but the next thing we get is the creation of Numenor for the, the men who were faithful to the elves during the war against Melkor. Numenor is a star-shaped island, and I've actually got a video on Numenor specifically, and I'll link to that as well. Um, and it has in its middle a very, very tall peak, which was hallowed ground. And eventually, the the men who were there, they become very, very good mariners. They are very highly advanced. This is essentially Atlantis within uh, Tolkien's mythology. So they become very advanced civilization. They start sailing all the way back to Middle-earth, uh, where other tribes of men are still there and a little more benighted. They have less knowledge of both technology and the Valar and, and just kind of the way the, the world works. 
Sauron, of course, is active in the world, and he's pulled many of them under his sway. This becomes relevant because Sauron is eventually taken as a willing hostage. He's essentially faking submission to the king of Numenor so that he can corrupt the king of Numenor and bring about the downfall of Numenor itself. He eventually gets his way. He manages to persuade the king of Numenor to invade Valinor. That was the one rule they never had was they couldn't sail west of their own island. He tells the king of Numenor, if you want immortality, sail into the west conquer Valinor and take immortality for yourself. The king does this. As a result, the Valar appeal to Eru Iluvatar, and he basically sinks Numenor beneath the waves. Just a huge cataclysmic event. Uh, a huge rift enters, uh, opens up beneath Numenor in the ocean. Numenor sinks. Uh, the only thing that's left is the top of that, ta of that mountain that was in the very center and that becomes an island, again, out in the middle of the, the ocean. But as a result of this, not only does Numenor sink, uh, Valinor is now no longer physically connected to the rest of the world. You now have Middle-earth and a globe. This is where you finally get the globe structure of the world. And then you have Valinor off in, essentially, space. It doesn't put it that way, um, but that's essentially what it is. And there's many references to the straight road. You can no longer sail directly to Valinor by the straight road because all the roads are bent, meaning, of course, that it's a globe now and everything is curved. Uh, so you've got that as the major, the last major event that changes the shape of the world. Now, the interesting things about this are some of the shaping of the world really does play into, you know, what's, what's available, what's not available. Uh, originally, all the elves and men originated in what more or less what we're familiar with as Middle Earth, or maybe even east of that. They didn't originate in Beleriand, which is the part that takes place in Silmarillion. That's where the Silmarillion happens. Uh, so you've got a lot of different changes taking place over time, and of course the creation story itself is interesting. In fact, it's it's interesting to read just just on its own, just because of the detail that Tolkien goes into in terms of describing the music and everything else that goes into it. But that is a brief history of what the creation of the world and how it changed literally in shape over the ages. So we'll wrap up with that. If you enjoyed that video, hope you learned a little bit about Middle Earth and the, the rest of the world, Arda, that you didn't know before probably didn't even know that it was technically Arda. You probably thought Middle-earth was the entire world, because that's really all we hear about in Lord of the Rings and The Hobbit. So anyway, hope that was instructive. Hope you enjoyed it. If you'd like to learn more about Tolkien and the worlds he created, then please subscribe. I'm going to be handling a lot more of this type of stuff. Uh, you can also follow me at Twitter at JRRTLore. And until next time, I am the Tolkien Geek, signing out for the Tolkien Lore Channel. Namadie.